Sadly, it seems too lopsided a contest when on the one hand, you've got hackers, fraudsters, malfeasance, and miscreants who are after your money and won't stop until they get it. And then on the other side, you have the elderly, the infirm, those with dementia, those suffering who are practically defenseless. That is up until now. Enter a remarkable accomplished human being, Dr. Dexter Penn, who is a clinical research fellow at UCL in London and, as it turns out, the chief executive officer of Calgara, which is a company he has formed dedicating itself to protecting those who would normally be defenseless and keeping their money and data safe. You'll hear all about him and his remarkable vision for a better future for the elderly here on today's episode of Dave and Darm Demystify. Listen up. From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Darm Demystify show. Dave and Darm Demystify Show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Darm Mystery. Demystify. So welcome everybody to today's episode of the podcast. And today we're very happy to have Dexter Penn from Calgary join us. So Dexter, could you give everybody a bit of background to yourself and also a brief introduction to Calgary? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Dave and Dan, for having me. So I'm the founder of Calgary, and we are a regtech platform that helps financial institutions better protect vulnerable people from financial harms. And we do this using data. And my background coming into fintech, it's non-standard. I'm actually a medical doctor. And I started off really underward working with older people, most of them with dementia. And I just saw this recurring thing happening over and over again, where people were just being scammed and defrauded out of their hard-earned savings and some people were even losing their homes and so I was quite shocked by this because I've been a doctor for like going on 12 years now and from the beginning of my career this is just something I've just always been seeing and there was this one instance though that this gentleman he had saved up and was about to go into a care home when it was discovered that the majority of the money that was meant to pay for his care was gone. Someone had been abusing him and it wasn't known about. He didn't have any relatives that were living nearby, but the one that did have some involvement used up all her annual leave, came in and just started crying when this came out because she just didn't know what to do. And it was that particular instance plus a few others as well that made me go searching for a solution to try to help my patients and their families that have been going through some really horrible situations. So talking about, you know, 
losing the family home and some things that started off as just 50 pounds <laughs> and then snowballed into something quite dramatic. So I was doing research methods masters at UCL at the time while still working full-time as a doctor. And as you do, decided to start a company. <laughs> so you didn't have enough going on. So you thought you'd have a side hustle of yeah. a company, did you? Yes, but it was more sort of like, well, let's see how this goes. Um, UCL, they run a fantastic innovation program. And I went to some of their sessions and a boot camp and went in to some competitions and won about £13,000 of initial cash to start developing a solution. And what that started off as was really just an app that was sending alerts to family members that their loved one potentially might be victim of a fraud. And this is something that I ended up going to number 10, <laughs> working a little bit with the... FCN, I was part of the all-party parliamentary group for longevity. And it's just a weird thing. It's just like one Sunday morning, my actual face was in the Sunday Times. Wow. <laughs> I mean, hold on a sec. Let's just go back a little bit. One minute you're working as a doctor, the next minute you're researching like solutions for this and you've gone to a boot camp to build apps and you've built an app and then you've gone to Downing Street I mean, that's phenomenal. I'm just, I'm flabbergasted. <laughs> that's an amazing start to a company, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know I'm sort of like casually just dropping it in there, but, you know, it's just one of the things that I needed to do in order to go and raise some money. And so I was fortunate to not only get some initial seed funding and some friends and family investments, but... I got a £100,000 grant from Nesta to really launch it, which we did in 2020. But we realised that we actually needed to take things a bit further. And we went into the National Cyber Security Centre's accelerator, so Cyber Accelerator. So during lockdown two, I was in an undisclosed location in Cheltenham. And we got a lot of support from that programme, as well as what we had from UCL and also was part of something called the NHS England Clinical Entrepreneur Programme. So a lot of different bits there to sort of mold me into this. And we pivoted into doing what we do now, which is analysing behaviour insights and transaction data in order to identify individuals at risk of financial abuse and those that have low financial resilience. And this is working directly with financial institutions now, because at the end of the day, yes, we can warn relatives, but it's really down to the bank to investigate and to block payments and to set up that safety infrastructure. It's really interesting because at one level, the banks are already doing quite a lot to stop fraudulent payments from happening. But, you know, I guess at the other end of the spectrum, I've had to deal with my father-in-law who's got dementia. You've got that whole thing around power of attorney. You don't set that up soon enough. It can be quite difficult to actually get things like power of attorney. So I guess you're sort of sitting somewhere in the middle of full power of attorney and also what the banks are doing. Is that right? It's a little bit more nuanced even. So my background, I'm a dementia researcher at UCL and I have published work looking into 
mental capacity and decision making. And when we're looking at these particular issues, we have to remember that capacity is not something that is fixed in stone. It's decision specific and it can change and fluctuate. And in the clinic, you know, when I first give someone a diagnosis of dementia, we try to encourage as strongly as possible to get that last power of attorney in place at that time. Right. Because if you wait until the person loses the capacity to manage their finances, then you've got to go through a very convoluted process through the court of protection. So that even if you want to buy a toothbrush for them, you've got to apply to a magistrate for permission. So it's just absolutely crucial that people have this in place. But what we're really doing is in the background, having a look at what's actually happening within the transactions for evidence. And this is going through a specific neuropsychological decision-making process of how people make financial decisions to see what's actually happening with them and how that's changing over time. So we can infer quite a lot from going through the data in terms of what's really going on. Is this person sort of making mistakes because it seems as though, you know, the trajectory is that they're now sort of having a cognitive problem or is it something that's quite sudden? So if you've just moved house like Darm has, you may have been a bit stressed and you may have been not as attentive as you would have. And it's ranging from that all the way to people that may be directly under the influence of a bad actor and that bad actor is transacting on that person's account. So we're looking for it in those stages, but it's about quantifying, you know, what that risk profile looks like over time and constantly monitoring it to see, is it actually improving? Because they might have been some advice given, let's say, from customer service when you bring up the bank about a particular transaction after that touch point, or is this something that's continuously deteriorating, which means that the lasting power of attorney that you should have put in place is now time to activate it. So it's about monitoring and evaluating. And this is really going into the FCA's four principles of looking after vulnerable customers. This is fascinating because do you think banks actually have people with your kind of background trying to do this anyway or this is a gap because they haven't really looked for people with a background like yourself in the medical industry because clearly you need to have that knowledge i've done loads of stuff with data but purely with a financial mindset or an experience of myself right managing money but i would never have thought of the things that you just come up with you know it's clearly because you've got that experience in the medical world do you think banks haven't done this because they haven't got people like you there i think it's partly the fact that you only look for things that you know to look for yeah and it's becoming increasingly challenging to sift through the information there's a lot of noise within the data and no, they don't have people like me in there. So there's no way that they would have been able to look at it in this particular Correct. lens. But because one of the fallouts from the pandemic in UK finance, they, they do their half-year report on fraud. There's a particular type of push payment fraud. So where someone gets talked into moving their money and they've authorized a transaction to somewhere, but that increased by 71%. And so we've got people really sort of shot up and sort of like in the first half of 2021, that was, you know, nearly 400 million 
you know, this is probably the first time I'm going to say this publicly, but I was victim of a significant push payment fraud. And I'm no man's fool. You know, I've been in IT in the web for like 30 years, right? And it wasn't a simple URL. My email got hacked and emails were being intercepted. You know, divisive emails were being sent to me and allowing me to be reading those, right? So these are very intelligent scammers. And the bank that, you know, I had obviously has big fraud departments, but they didn't pick it up. So I think what you're doing is fascinating because you're bringing this behavioral science to the picture as well. It's amazing. But I can see now why there's this gap in the banking side of things, because it's not obvious who you go to to get a deeper understanding of some of these frauds. I'm curious in terms of the product itself, it sits looking at the kind of customer data rather than the transactional data. If I'm a big bank, where would this sort of plug into my organization, I guess? Is there an API? Oh, yeah. So this actually runs in the background alongside your core system. And so API pulls some data in. This will all be on the servers of that institution, just in terms of information governance and GDPR and all that. And we then just send a response that we can provide either a dashboard that we've designed ourselves, or it can feed via API directly into your CRM system so that you have a risk score that's there, that can be, the staff can be trained up to use that. That's very, very interesting. I think it's such a fascinating area. You know, you've got increasing numbers of people who tip into that vulnerable category, but kind of as Darmish has just demonstrated is we're all vulnerable to a degree, aren't we, around all of this stuff. Not a week goes by without some sort of news article about somebody who's had the wool pulled over their eyes by fraudsters. And I often sit there going, well, how did they let it happen? But what people misunderstand is just how sophisticated bad actors are in terms of getting money. And, you know, it's not just the case of people randomly phoning up out of the blue and asking for account details and all the other bits and pieces. There's a lot of sophistication built into all of these things. So one of my questions is, if you're looking at the way the brain is making decisions around finance, how do you identify anomalies in terms of, you know, good and bad? I mean, what are some of the things that you're perhaps looking for? Yes. So there's been lots of research looking into financial vulnerability. The FCA has been doing some serious work on this since about 2014 or so. And they found that more than half, 53% of adults in the UK show some characteristics of vulnerability. So it should be any of us at any time. And what is quite striking is the way that this can just be short term, or it can be something that's fixed and progressively getting worse. And it's very important to recognize that, you know, well, the underlying drivers of vulnerability, it's quite dependent on your individual situation. So being able to do this on a personalized level is very valuable because, you know, life is messy, things happen, and we don't always fit into a checkbox pretty much. So it's important to be able to have those distinctions there. And just really when we're looking at these particular behavioral factors, if we look at financial decision-making, you've got to be able to have certain levels of 
understanding. You need to know, okay, my bank account is at this bank. I need to have some sort of procedural knowledge to know that, okay, well, this is how you use a cash card to get money out of the cash machine. This is how I make a transaction online to buy something. And then you have to exercise your judgment to act in your own self-interest. And outside of that, you've got environmental factors, which could be positively or negatively impacting on your ability to exercise your judgment. So it could be geography. It could be that, you know, all of the branches are shut nearby where you live and you can't go and ask someone. So you just sort of go ahead and do things. Or it could be socioeconomics. You may be on a low wage and you can't meet your essential needs. And that's a factor there. Or you may have a very supportive partner that earns more than you do that can supplement your income. And that's an external factor there. So looking at all of these different pieces and inferring from the transaction data, evidence of these types of behaviors is what we do at Calgera and our overall purpose is to create more financially inclusive caring society. And being able to identify those risk factors is the first step to being able to take action later on. To answer the question, really, there is value in looking at these particular trends happening and linking them to potential events in their life to be able to do different things. And from a bank's perspective, you'd be able to suggest more appropriate financial products for that person's circumstances. And you know we don't want people to be excluded because of the fact that they're vulnerable, but it's about appropriateness for that and having some evidence of implementing the knowledge that you have gained in that situation to reduce the bad outcomes that people experience, which could be mis-selling products or it could be fraud. The other side of the coin is, you know, vulnerable people could end up in a dystopian nightmare in which what they're doing is actually okay and they're wanting to do it, but the bank's sort of saying, no, you can't. I mean, I was just chatting to someone this morning. He was sort of stuck dealing with the fraud department in a bank. And, you know, it wasn't very straightforward what was going on, despite the fact he knew what was happening. I guess there's a need to protect people from tipping into kind of bank processes, which if you've got dementia dealing with a bank and their fraud department could be a real frightening experience, couldn't it? Yes, also that there's a bit here about like, what's the fine line between having too much data or assuming too much, you know, and I personally argue that banks don't have enough of the right data. They have lots of data, but not enough of the right data. And if they were allowed to, or they encouraged customers to tell them a bit more about themselves, like I'm mildly dyslexic, right? And it was one character in a URL that was wrong that led me to make the false payment, right? And if the bank had known that I was dyslexic, first they should have validated the name anyway. They do that these days, but this was before that. But secondly, if they knew I was dyslexic, then they would have said, ah, yeah. So that's not the same name and it's not a typo. You know, potentially this is a different organization, right? So they would have picked that up, but they don't have that information. I think there's a part of society that kind of may not want the bank to hold that information. So we're in a kind of bit of a quandary or dilemma here that there's too much that the banks could hold and do with versus, you know, what customers might want to share and want the bank to know. We're in a Facebook scenario almost. 
Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So this is why we've been very careful about this. And we have a stakeholder working group, people that have head of fraud from one of the big banks and magistrate and different people <laughs> that have personal experience dealing with these issues. And we went through a framework of financial abuse using some real case studies. And we took that and we did a review of our AI ethics related to this. So looking at the Equalities Act, the Mental Capacity Act, as well as all of the intricacies of the information governance that we'd need to consider within this. You know, we do this with the minimum data that we require in order to answer the question. And I think you're absolutely right that using data appropriately, but you need to have the right data. You know, so the classic thing, the formative thing is, you know, garbage in, garbage out. And so if we aren't able to have the right quality of data, then you will make lots of mistakes. And to Dave's point, yes, people will end up in a dystopian <laughs> nightmare because they didn't have the right information. So I think the conversation that I have found that more than 80% of people were willing to share data with their bank in order to protect loved ones and themselves from fraud. But we really have to think about in that conversation and in that relationship, personally, you know, quite strongly in favor of us thinking a little bit more about the data that we are generating. It belongs to us. It's our data. And we should have some control over it and be able to share that sparingly as much as we feel comfortable. But we have to get something back that's in our own self-interest. And so if it is a personal safety issue, it's just really like, you know, are you safe to drive kind of a thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you safe to manage your finances in your own interest? We're all allowed to do silly things with our money because it's our money. But if it is preventing you from meeting your essentials and you're in a position which means that you are not resilient to a financial shock, then, you know, this cost of living crisis that we're sort of sleepwalking into at the moment, I think a lot of people are going to be harmed because inflation being this high and, you know, it's not been this high since 92. It's actually higher than what it was in 92. I really don't think people are going to be able to cope with some of these stressors as well. So it's really about taking a moment and looking at the risk benefit. And I know this is a bit of a nuance, but this is where you have people like me looking at these issues, but really trying to see what is it that you would prefer. If you want to completely opt out of this and be you know, out there in the Wild West, you should have the option of opting out. But if you are able to say that, yes, I'm happy to share this particular characteristic, I know that I've got some protection, that this is not going to disenfranchise me or exclude me from particular products, and I have some means of recompense if something goes wrong and I can complain and something actually happens, then you know, if you've got those processes and checks and balances in place, I think that actually makes it a win-win for everyone. I agree. And then, you know, the data confirms that if people are quite happy to have that grown-up conversation with their banks. It's just, we've all been pushed down this very transactional path and, you know, banks are almost frightened of having that conversation. And I think that needs to change. We need a national thing around power of attorney. So making sure that people do do that early enough before things like dementia set in because that just sort of clogs up the courts as you say and causes a lot of heartache and things like that so I think it's really interesting I mean it's a fabulous 
product. And, you know, unfortunately, we've run out of time, but thank you so much for joining us and explaining all about it. And we look forward to seeing how things evolve for you. So thank you for joining us, Dexter. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was brilliant. Nice chatting. Thank you, Dexter. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Dan Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Darm Demystify Show is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.